Dixie Baptist Church is not our home church, but it is near where we live in Michigan. The reason I know about this church is their sign that is nearly impossible to miss if you're driving on Route 75 northbound. It shows a large depiction of Jesus and asks passersby, are you on the right road? I have no doubt that most people who go by there have become numb to its presence and impervious to the message. I'm not even referring to the average non-believer. I'm talking about those who claim to be a Christian or to know Jesus or to follow Jesus. I'm convinced that as we progress into the future technologically and scientifically, we continue to regress in our understanding of the Bible. This shouldn't surprise us. The imagined growth of society and culture are really just stories that we tell ourselves to make us feel superior to our predecessors. As I celebrate two years and 50 episodes of Rise Up with this episode, I'm going to delve into the nature of society and culture, demonstrate our repetition of the mistakes made throughout history, and offer an alternative route that to the truths that we find so hard to accept. I'll contrast the easy road of self-indulgence with the selfless road less traveled, the wide path of worldly acceptance, or the narrow path that leads to the Father. I'll caution you, though, even the road toward Jesus has a fork in it. Good morning, and welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I am John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions provided by the Word of God. So there's a quote that I I don't know if people have come right out and said it like this, but um, every it seems like every culture throughout history has said it in one way or another. And, I, and it goes something like this, uh, sure, that failed in the past, but we're not them. As a species, the human race has demonstrated the admirable quality of never giving up. In and of itself, that's not a bad trait to have. Imagine if Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Marie Curie, or George Washington Carver gave up after failing at one of their experiments. The world would be a very different place. Realistically, though, their accomplishments would have been made anyway, just by someone else who didn't give up. Learning from failure is the key to progress, not avoiding failure. The greatest achievements in our history did not happen on the first attempt. They happened after many failures because their inventors refused to give up. They learned from their mistakes, they adapted, and they overcame. The big difference between the genius minds of these overachievers and society in general is the ability to look at evidence empirically, identify the failure, and correct for it. Inventors and scientists should have a singular goal in mind, truth. 
they should work toward that goal without ego or bias. They should follow the evidence wherever it leads. Society in general does not do that. No matter what truth is being sought, there will be a loud group raging against the evidence they see with their own eyes. When confronted by their own hypocrisy, they'll simply say something like, yeah, they failed in the past because they didn't know what we know now. We can surely make this work. Let's examine the Roman Empire as an example. Started in the 8th century BC, the Roman Empire grew to cover the known world at that time through military might and diplomacy. By the 2nd century AD, the empire was at its most powerful, and three centuries later, the greatest human empire was an unwelcome memory. Let's look at some of the causes of the fall of such a powerful empire. Now, I got all of this information, or a lot of it. I mean, I put in some of my own spin on some of this. Not spin, but opinion, I guess. Uh, Exploros.com listed eight reasons in, a, in an article linked at, at the end, as always, um, for the fall of the Roman Empire. Number one, invasions by powerful enemies. The Visigoths and the Vandals were the most successful, but realistically, the Romans left enemies everywhere they went, and they had no answers for defending against them except to put aged-out soldiers in leadership roles in frontier states. This was not going to be... Uh, it was not going to work forever, and, and it didn't. Uh, number two, economic troubles. Financial crises from constant war and overspending led to heavy taxation and inflation. The over-reliance on slave labor also became a problem. Over time, slavery dwindled the workforce, and as the empire, no longer able to expand, lost its sources for new laborers, the empire began to fail. Number three, the rise of the Eastern Empire in the late 3rd century AD. Uh, eventually, weaknesses in Rome led to a split with the Eastern Greek-speaking half. The split further weakened the West, opening it to attack from enemies uh, and internal strife, effectively ending the empire in the 5th century, while the Eastern uh, Empire lasted another 10 centuries after that. Number four, overexpansion and military overspending. Rome expanded quickly, often conscripting their vanquished opponents to serve as soldiers uh, in exchange for their eventual freedom. As the empire began to crack, uh, people born Roman were less likely to volunteer to fight battles, often turning against the empire. Uh, they were also no longer taking new territory, allowing the mass conscriptions that had kept their military strong in the past. Number five, government corruption and political instability. Uh, ineffective and inconsistent leadership also weakened the Roman Empire. It, de it descended into civil war, uh, changing empires 20 times in the next 75 years. Number six, the arrival of the Huns and the migration of barbarian tribes. R Romans un allowed unfettered access to the Visigoths into Roman territory. When 
in reality, they had no way of stopping them even if they wanted to. Uh, they treated them with uh, very poorly, uh, and it didn't take long for the new arrivals to see the true weakness of Roman leadership. Germanic tribes took Roman territories all over Western Europe and Africa, further weakening the empire. Number seven, Christianity and the loss of tra traditional values. In 313, Constant Constantine and Licinius uh, issued the Edict of Milan, Milan decriminalizing Christianity. Uh, 67 years later, the Emperor Theodosius uh, issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity the official re uh, religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity had supplanted the polytheism that had convinced people that their emperor was divine. And then finally, number eight, weakening of the Roman legions. All of these things compounded with the empire's inability to recruit enough Roman citizens to serve in the military. And during uh, and the drying up of their conscriptions through conquest left them with the untenable necessity of hiring foreign mercenaries to fill out their armies. Uh, these Germanic soldiers were fierce, disloyal, and had front row seats to the decay within the empire. I know that's a lot of information and you might be thinking, well, that's 10 minutes I'll never get back. But I promise there is a point to this. So tell me, after hearing those eight reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire, if you see any parallels between that empire of the first eight centuries AD and our own constitutional republic, the U.S. of A. Let's go to the scoreboard one more time. Powerful unchecked en enemies. Uh, yeah, check. Economic failures. Check. Division sown in the populace. Oh, yeah. You can't even turn on the news anymore without hearing how you're the problem. Government corruption. Yep, the actual problem is government corruption, but they are going to convince us that it's us. Uh, uninhibited migration. Yep, got that one. Uh, loss of belief in the power of leadership. Yep, and yep. And finally, the weakening of the military. Check and clean sweep. So all eight uh, we're suffering from as well. Uh, these issues corrupted and destroyed arguably the greatest empire in human history, largely from within. Yet we enlightened modern people ignore them as if we're somehow immune to the human failings of our predecessors. We're living out the fall of the Roman Empire on repeat as if we have no ability to see their mistakes and learn from them. The truth is we do have the ability to learn. We just don't have the humility to accept that we are the problem. We always think we can do it better than the other people, whoever the other people are. Whether it's socialism, education, or even religion, we refuse to accept the lessons learned. Instead, we defiantly repeat the same foolish endeavors expecting different results, which, as we know, is the definition of insanity. I'm going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back with more. All right, I'm back, and 
if you're asking still, what's your point, John? Wait no longer. We're here. Every choice in our lives brings us to a crossroad. We can take the easy, convenient way or the harder, but ultimately more rewarding way. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Paul developed an evangelical version of the narrow path in the book of Romans. Later evangelists dubbed it the Romans road to salvation. It consists of four very necessary steps to set a lost person on the path from open rebellion to the foot of the cross. Apologist and author Greg Kukul often warns listeners that this process is not about getting people convinced, it's about getting people converted. Convincing a person of anything is purely mental. It is part of the process, but converting someone implies both mental and spiritual commitment that will then be seen in the physical actions of their new life. So let's talk about the Romans road to salvation. Uh, what is it exactly? Well, step one is that is in Romans 3.23, and it's that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the road starts with the ego-shattering admission that we have a sin nature. We didn't ask for it, but we have reveled in it. God himself called this out in Genesis 6.12, where it says, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. All flesh. We make excuses for our behavior, claiming no one gets hurt or God wants me to be happy or YOLO, you only live once. Uh, these are some of the most destructive ideologies in human history. Justifications like these have allowed people to convince themselves that every crime, including rape, child abuse, murder, including abortion, and even slavery were for a righteous reason. Just convince yourself that your victim is not human, as slave traders, Nazis, and abortionists do and did, and you have carte blanche for genocide. The first step in solving our problem is admitting that we have one. We are all sinners. Number two, the second step on the Romans road is comes to us in Romans 6.23, which is the wages of sin is eternal death. In Ezekiel 18.24, we're told not one of his upright acts will be kept in memory. In the wrong which he has done, and in his sin, death will overtake him. God is perfectly holy and cannot abide sin. This is made clear in Habakkuk 1.13 when the prophet answers the question of God's ability to have sin in his presence when he describes God as, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. As always, our God provides a solution 
to this problem. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are assured, for him who had no knowledge of sin, God made to be sin for us, that's Jesus, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's his righteousness, never ours. We have to be able to admit this, that we have a problem in step one and that we've been given a solution in step two. Number th- uh, Step three comes in part B of Romans 6.23, which is the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This third part expands on what was said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, In Hebrews 9.14, the writer explains how much more will the blood of Christ, who being without sin, made an offering of himself to God through the Holy Spirit, make your hearts clean from dead works to be servants of the living God. I absolutely adore the imagery of Paul's words in that one, or well, not sure if it's Paul's words in Hebrews I think it is, but um, also in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what do we learn there? First, we learn that his love for us was greater than our sin. How much more will the blood of Christ, who being without sin, made an offering of himself to God through the Holy Spirit, make your hearts clean from dead works to be servants of the living God? It says it, right? The second thing we learn is that Jesus suffered our penalty to reconcile us with God, where it says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the third thing that we learn is that the best is still yet to come. As awesome and wonderful and amazing as all of that was, it's not even the best yet, right? Where it says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's amazing. I love those verses. So then we come to the fourth and final step of the Romans road, and that's Romans 10, 9. So confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why does he ask, or I'm sorry, what does he ask of us in return for all that he's offering us in those previous verses? Declare that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to pay for your sins. That's it. That's the list. You are saved. You are adopted. You are a child of the one true king for eternity. Remember earlier when I said that there was a fork in the road? 
even for the followers of Jesus. I'm going to take another quick break, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to discuss that. All right, here goes. Okay, we're going to talk about that fork in the road that I mentioned that even followers of Jesus will come to at some point. Uh, Paul did assure us of the finality of our salvation in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, when he said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our salvation, if true, and only God knows that, is never in doubt. So if we truly accept Jesus, declare that Jesus is our Lord, and believe in our heart that he was raised for the dead to pay for our sins, then our salvation is secure. We took the narrow gate, and we will eventually find our way to the judgment seat of Christ our King. The fork I'm referring to is in what we choose to do with our faith after choosing the narrow gate. Jesus, our Savior, King gave us his subjects, two instructions, a command, and a reminder. Okay? Three, uh, two instructions, a command, and a reminder. Four total things that we need to think about. First, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment. He replied in verses 37 to 39 with two instructions. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was never one to give instruction without explanation. And he didn't this time either. In verse 40, He explained that the entire story of the Bible leads to these conclusions when he said, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's calling out right then and there that the entire story of the Old Testament, from start to finish, is telling us, or is meant to tell us, that we should love the Lord our God and that we should love our neighbor. Second, in Matthew 28, 18, and 20, often referred to as the Great Commission, Jesus issued a command to his faithful. And yes, a commission is a command. Ask anybody you know who's a veteran or currently in the military, they'll tell you. In verse 18, he established his authority by stating all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Next, he issued the order in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then finally, he reassured us that we would never be alone in this battle when he said, 
and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Finally, in Acts 1.8, in his last earthly words to his people, he gave us a final reminder before ascending to his rightful place in heaven, sending the Holy Spirit to be with us through this battle that he's engaged us in. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The question I ask now is not an accusation or in judgment. Neither of those things are mine to claim. I simply ask two questions that I often ask myself. If you have not chosen the narrow gate, what is holding you back? And number two, if you did choose the narrow gate, which path to the Lord are you on? Are you on the shortcut path? Are you satisfied with your salvation and coasting to the finish line where you'll meet your Lord and Savior? Or you or are you on the bumpy, treacherous, and ultimately life-giving path that Jesus asked you to take to reach him? Ask yourself a few questions. Do you demonstrate love for your God by loving all of his people? Do you make disciples, teaching them to observe the Lord? And are you his witness to the world? I often remind myself when I'm exhausted and I still have more commitments to live up to that I'm not doing it for me. Sometimes my flesh wins the argument. I am not perfect. More often than not, I am supernaturally fueled to meet those obligations and soldier on for the glory of my king. I don't fear very much since I gave my life to Jesus. Even my death will be a reward that I will be grateful for when the time comes. Until then, one thing that does actually strike fear in my heart is that I might be satisfied with my own salvation and stop doing the will of my King. To prevent this fear from being realized, I wake up every morning I take up my cross and I try to bear it with some dignity, doing the work my Lord called me to do. I will not take the shortcut to the judgment seat, leaving myself with the untenable task of asking why I showed up empty-handed. I know, though, even in that scenario, even if I did show up empty-handed, I would be accepted and forgiven for that and all of my other sins. But I have to believe that there is a better way. So I leave you with this one final question. Which road are you on? I want to sincerely thank all of you who listen, whether you listen every time or it's your first time, for two wonderful years of seeking God together. Though I have struggled with doubt at times over whether I'm even the right person to be doing this podcast or whether anyone is even getting anything out of it. 
God has found ways to assure me at my lowest moments that this study has value to someone. So I will continue to rise up. I hope you will too.